Pain is generally considered to be the most common reason our patients come to see us. Yet it's a phenomenon that we fully don't understand and one that varies widely from patient to patient. With regard to prescription of potent painkillers like methadone, does the often cryptic nature of pain warrant additional pain management training for practitioners ordering these meds? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon, and our guest is Dr. Howard Height, a nationally recognized chronic pain and addiction specialist practicing in Northern Virginia and an assistant clinical professor at the Georgetown University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Height. Thank you, Dr. Hill, for having me on this program. Dr. Height, are there individual differences in variability with respect to different patient diseases and subtypes in using methadone? Absolutely, there is. There's a new field called pharmacogenetics of drugs, and that has to do with the genetics that deal with the relationship between inherited genes and the ability of the body to metabolize drugs. And there are variations in patients or group responses to group therapy, in drug efficacy or drug safety. And we will not know the patient's response to a given drug until after it's given. Will it be a benefit or adverse reaction? And methadone is a perfect example of this. Its half-life has a marked individual variation from 14 to 40 hours. It is extensively biotransformation in the liver through the cytochrome 450 system. The activity of the cytochrome 50 system can vary as much as 50-fold in individuals. Another example of pharmacogenetics is the medicine codeine. Most family practitioners or internists know codeine, but codeine is a prodrug, meaning it has no intrinsic analgesic action in itself, but it gets metabolized, 10% of it, to morphine that gives it its analgesic action. And approximately 10% of the population, pharmacogenetically, does not have the enzyme to metabolize codeine. Now, speaking as a pretty regular general surgeon, and I'm sure many of the listeners are thinking, we really don't have this background that puts us at a great disadvantage to properly prescribing medications like these. Well, I come back to when we were in medical school, Dr. Hill, and I come back in medical school the first time that I did a spinal tap, and with trembling hands, I put the needle in the lower back, and I hear a... And I thought the brains were in the syringe. And, but after I did about three, four, five, six, a dozen of them, I was very comfortable doing a spinal tap. And like anything else, the first time you prescribe it, the first time that you do a procedure, sure, there's going to be apprehension. But then the more that you get used to that particular medication, more comfortable with it, then you're more able to use it appropriately for your patients. Now, you read stories of physicians in legal trouble for what the government calls prescribing errors, and, and you've actually labored with federal regulators to improve guidelines for narcotics. So what can we do? How do we really differentiate medical error in prescribing versus criminal behavior? Well, I think your chart, your medical records, is the key. Your medical records, that if you don't document everything in your medical records, it's a figment of your imagination. Dr. Hill, I published something called Universal Precautions in Pain Medicine. It's 10 principles of how to approach the chronic pain patient and also a triage scheme of which patients one should take care of. 
And since your listeners are mainly internists or family practitioners, they should take care of the group one patient. That's the patient who doesn't have the disease of addiction or untreated psychiatric morbidity. Group two patients or patients may have these problems or these diagnoses in their past, but they're well controlled. And in that case, you may want to get a consult with someone like myself so that I could see whether your treatment plan is appropriate for that particular patient. And group three patients are ones that you shouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. Those are the patients who have an active disease of addiction or have untreated psychopathology. So whenever you see a patient, just like you're seeing a patient who has a cardiac problem or an endocrine rod problem or a pulmonary problem, you always have to determine who is my patient, who is your patient, and who is our patient. Why is it taken so long for us physicians to utilize people in your specialty? Unfortunately, there are not a lot of people in my specialty. That's true. Because, again, we come back to the basic training that I had no training in pain or addiction during my years of internship, resident, medical school, fellowship, etc. I had no training in the interface of pain and addiction. In interrupting you, sir, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your personal story, which really personifies this discussion over methadone and pain management? Well, my story is a little bit unusual. I'm speaking to you, and I'm in my third life when I'm speaking to you. My first life, I was complete Neanderthal, played Division I football at the University of Pittsburgh, and then I met my wife, and she domesticated me and introduced <laughs> me to the finer things in life. My second life was as a board-certified gastroenterologist and hepatologist. My third life began in 1986, March 28, 8.15 at night, by going to the NIH for a liver journal club. A young fellow was speeding, hit me head-on in a car crash that gave me a very, very rare muscle disorder called axial spasmodic torticollis that made me a chronic pain patient and put me in a wheelchair for 20 years. Oh, my and being a chronic pain patient and going to see doctors and not sitting in my usual and customary chair, it became very apparent to me that my fellow physicians had little or no knowledge of pain management. And I thought to myself, if this was happening to me, some of the foolish things were said to me, if this was happening to me as an ex-jock, an ex-football player, Division One, a physician and a male, what was happening to the average person out there who did not have my background? And I decided to make that my passion and my life work by retraining in pain and addiction medicine. If you have just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and our guest is Dr. Howard Height, a nationally recognized chronic pain and addiction specialist practicing in Northern Virginia and an assistant clinical professor at the Georgetown University School of Medicine. We are discussing trends and considerations associated with the prescription of methadone. Dr. Height, you just told us that very personal story. Tell us the impact that it had on your fellow physicians when you decided to change specialties and go into pain and addiction management. Well, the impact, Mark, that my fellow physicians had is initially you felt very, very isolated. Initially, Again, I was, you know, assistant chief of GI at a big hospital. I was chief of the endoscopy ward. And all of a sudden, 
I couldn't go to rounds. I couldn't go to do many things that I did as far as patient care. And I had a couple years that was struggling of what I was going to do with my life until I decided that this is the field that I was going to go into because I had to make a decision secondary to my lack of mobility at that time that it had to be an outpatient profession that I chose. And I had to be a 100% outpatient because I didn't have the mobility to go inpatient. And so I wouldn't say that my fellow physicians were extremely helpful in this particular area. Do you share this personal story with your fellow patients? I share this story because I think it's very, very important that they understand that I know what they're going through on both sides of the desk. And that helps me bond and increase my communication with my patients, that they understand that I know what it feels to be in chronic pain, and how devastating it can be in your life. Dr. Hyde, if you would give us physicians a report card, a grade, as to how well we're doing in pain management in this day and time, how are we doing? A gentleman C at most. What makes you say that? Well, I live in a very sophisticated area outside of Washington, D.C., and it's very, very difficult for someone to find someone to take care of their chronic pain problem. And it's almost impossible if the person has a background of addiction in their clinical history to find someone. And so if this is happening in a very sophisticated area outside of Washington, D.C., where I'm one of the few, if only, doctors doing pain and addiction medicine, what's happening across the country in less sophisticated metropolitan areas or rural areas? I think this is a national disgrace in regards to the undertreatment of pain because it's costing our country billions, that I said billions of dollars, in lost productivity in regards to the undertreatment or non-treatment of pain. But aren't physicians frightened if they undertreat a patient for pain, they get in trouble, and if they overtreat a patient for pain, they get in trouble? We're between a rock and a hard place. Well, I would say the chances of you getting into trouble with undertreating pain is very small compared what physicians feel if they treat pain. When you say it's not all about the money, it's all about the money. What do you mean? (laughs) Well, let's face it. If you have a busy practice and an internist or a family practitioner and you have somebody with chronic pain and you know the stories that are in the media and the methadone stories and you hear about the deaths of methadone, you say, why do I need this aggravation? I only have 10, 15 minutes to see the patient and I'm not going to get reimbursed anything more by seeing this complex patient. And so nobody's going to say anything if I don't treat that patient while I will perceive that I will get into trouble and put more aggravation on my life and my practice if I do treat the patient. And I think that's wrong. I think this is a chronic disease. Pain is a chronic disease. And it takes just as much time to do this properly as it takes time to do chronic diseases appropriately, such as chronic obstructive lung disease or diabetes, to interact with the patient. Let me ask you a question, thinking about what happens to all of us as clinicians. Let's say I'm covering for Dr. Smith, another surgeon, and I get a call on a Saturday evening from a patient of his that I don't know, and they say, well, doctor, uh, I'm in great pain. I had an operation, and I ran out, or I lost my prescription, or lost my pills, or I'm out of town, and I need some Vicodins or something like that. And we're worried, of course, that perhaps this patient is manipulating me. How do you deal with that situation? Well, I deal with a situation that's in my opioid agreement that my patient 
has enough medicine from appointment to appointment plus three days extra in case there's a delay in the appointment, either by my schedule or his or her schedule or by the weather. And I think that the particular practice has to have a meeting and bring up this particular situation that we are not going to prescribe certain pain medications after hours or on weekends, and the patients will learn this very, very quickly that these are the rules of this particular practice, and therefore they will make sure before the weekend comes or before 5 o'clock that if they need the medicines, they call the doctor who has prescribed them originally the medicines so the chart's available for that refill or not. Do you think that may be interpreted by some patients as being a little hard-lined? Well, again, I say this is my practice, and that's why it's called my practice. I get to run it any way that I want, just like any other business. It's my practice. And what I, by doing that, I'm protecting the valid pain patient, I'm protecting my staff, I'm protecting myself, and I'm protecting my community because we know that prescription drug misuse, and especially opioids, in a study by Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, has shown that prescription drug misuse or addiction now exceeds marijuana as a national health problem. So if I present it to my patient, these are the rules of how my office works for the good of you, the good of my staff, the good of my family, and the good of my community, then that's the way it is. And that's why I think it's important for the pain doctor to know addiction medicine because there's a term called my way or the highway or tough luck. <laughs> Do you think that in our chronic pain patients that the use of methadone will be more prevalent than other medications? I think so because, unfortunately, as we sit here now, our health care system is less than optimal in regards to its efficiency and this is a wonderful medicine, as I said earlier. It's a very, very cheap medicine if used appropriately. And like I said, it's an unforgiving medicine if used inappropriately. And I think it's going to have a bigger and bigger role as time goes on just because it's a very cost-effective way to treat pain. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Howard Height. We've been discussing trends and considerations associated with the prescription of methadone. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM157. And thank you for listening.